0: Wanna give love to the city, that's a fact.
1: But you're gonna need help if you wanna make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed, with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed.
2: Hi everyone, welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Bonkink.
3: And I'm Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network.
2: Edmonton is full of generous donors who've created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to support charities in Edmonton and beyond.
3: On this podcast, we share stories about how these funds help strengthen our community, because it's good to be well endowed.
2: Today, we look at the vital topic gaps in our social safety net, which explores places where many people are struggling to make ends meet.
3: This is the focus of our latest vital topic, where we see examples of how programs designed to help vulnerable populations have been trimmed or reworked by various governments, leaving a complicated system of clawbacks and penalties.
2: Seeking assistance is difficult to navigate. You need to know where to look and meet specific qualifications. And once you are accepted to a program, you must continuously prove that you are in need, as well as adhere to program requirements which often limit the number of hours you are allowed to work or the amount of income you're allowed to earn.
3: The way the system is structured leaves those living below the poverty line with little hope of improving their situation.
2: Our correspondent, Emily Rendell Watson, spoke with Eric Ampman, Nadine Chalafou, and Karen Bruno to learn more about how these gaps in our social safety net impact us.
4: The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed some of the gaps in our social safety net. From programs that have been trimmed or reworked to cutbacks and clawbacks. 10,000 fewer households in the province received Alberta Works because they were eligible for CERB instead. Meanwhile, benefits like childcare subsidies aren't keeping up with inflation. And that's just the beginning. The latest vital topic explores all of these nuances, delving into the complicated systems that make up our social safety net. This segment will explore the human side the people who work within these systems and who are directly affected by the programs in question. To provide some context on this issue, I spoke to Eric Amtman. He's a member of the Edmonton Police Commission and the former executive director of the Edmonton Mennonite Center for Newcomers. He is currently the executive director of End Poverty Edmonton.
0: I think in terms of like waking the public up to just how fragile and uh, ineffective, our social safety net is. The pandemic did that. Like it, it just blew the doors open on that, and I think it really enforced this message that sometimes bad things happen to good people, and sometimes you need to have a safety net to catch you because things will happen that are way out of your control that have nothing to do with you, despite you working hard and doing all the things that you were told to do when you were growing up. Bad things still happen to good people. The Serb is an example where when bad things were happening to a lot of people, the government just said, we need to get everybody money and forget the rules, forget trying to catch people and worrying about the 1% and all that. And they just, they gave everybody money. It's something that you just don't see. You know, we're happy to program people like crazy. We'll make you jump through hoops to get $500 for housing. You'll have to go to the food bank weekly. You're going to have to find a means to get another subsidy. There's a special program that you have to go to. And so you're doing all this stuff to make it by. And then when Covid came around. We said, "Well, that's crazy. People just need help, so let's give them the help." And the legacy of Covid is is hopefully this uh, mantras of "build back better." We were doing good, but good isn't good enough. So let's do great, and let's figure out how to, as a community or as a a nation, really do better, and so that everybody can thrive in, in our our space. That we don't like the idea of people having to struggle for no good reason. And so I, I think Covid has just been this really powerful thing that opened our eyes to other people's plights and to this notion that good isn't good enough.
4: So you gave an example of one of those potential gaps in terms of CERB. Can you walk me through a couple of those other gaps that have been illustrated through what's gone on in the world over the last year and a bit now?
0: Uh, I mean, it's it's a difficult question because I think it's in a lot of ways still unfolding. You know, you see things that have come to the surface that have been talked about for decades. Childcare would be a really good example where, it was always like, you know, we really need to do childcare and, you know, the, the she session and all that. And then the pandemic happened and people were like, yeah, when we look at the numbers, women are paying an enormous price in, in terms of their, their economic wealth because they are the primary caregivers. And so our lack of a, of a good childcare system means that women are going to carry this burden for a very long time. You know, CERB led to a very rigorous conversation about basic income. In a way that it was sort of an academic idea. Now you've got private members' bills and it's it's being discussed as potential platform material. Our healthcare system was just on a razor's edge, old age homes, all of these things were just exposed as sort of one challenge away from sort of collapsing. And and I think now we have a lot of people looking at those systems to say, not only were they did they collapse in the pandemic, they weren't good going into the pandemic. And so when we come out of this thing, those systems had better be a lot better because we don't think it's acceptable to kind of have that low, low standard that we were comfortable with.
4: One of the challenges is that programs that are designed to help the vulnerable populations have been trimmed or reworked, which, as the Vital Signs report found, can leave this complicated system of penalties and clawbacks. How does that impact people who are living below the poverty line?
0: It traps people there. Those rules are designed to catch 1% of cheaters, not to help the 99% of people who need that program and will benefit from that program. And so what you do is you trap somebody in a place of poverty. If they get ahead, you're punished for it. Would you take a a couple more hours uh, on your next shift if it meant jeopardizing your housing? Probably not. If you knew that a caseworker was gonna show up at your house, if you took another 10 hours next week to determine whether or not you were eligible for program X, would you take those 10 hours? Probably not. And so what a lot of people do is essentially start doing things that are that you would think instinctively aren't in their benefit, or they'll be put in a position where they need to lie. So if you're in social housing and you have a child who goes to Nate, you're no longer eligible to have them in your house. So you either need to kick them out or start lying that they don't live with you. We kind of create this cycle where we trap people in poverty. It also helps it reinforce this message to their children that like this is how you get by by sort of uh being in the system. If you incentivize somebody to do better, they will take advantage of that. If you incentivize somebody to stay put because it won't make things worse, they'll stay put because it won't make things worse, and so we need to rethink how our systems are designed
4: when we think about tangible change, some of the things you've talked about in terms of like how the pandemic has exposed some of these issues and and where it's left people, what else do you think should be done? Like, where do we go from here?
0: I think it's an opportunity for us as a community to come together that we can, we have had a joint experience that wasn't isolated to any one group. Like I said, there, there are groups that were affected worse than others, but we all went through this. We've all experienced this in some way or another, and we've all had a pretty unpleasant year and a bit so far. And I think that joint experience says like, I don't want somebody else to have to suffer. I I don't, I didn't enjoy suffering and I don't want anybody else to have to suffer. And I know people in my community are. So let's come together from all walks of life. Let's not leave it to the social service sector to address homelessness. Let's bring in the corporate sector. Let's bring in more government organizations to be a part of the solution. Let's bring in volunteers and let's figure out who's got you know, an empty office space that can be converted and which construction company will do it at cost. And I think this this is an opportunity to bring us together as a community to like really address some of these deep issues that our community faces.
4: But who does that responsibility fall to? Is that the, you know, various levels of government in terms of actually enacting that change?
0: I like to believe it falls to Poverty Edmonton. I think the genius of In Poverty Edmonton for the creators of it was it created this entity that wasn't stuck chasing program dollars, that wasn't stuck trying to, you know, validate its value by saying, you know, we sent 50 kids through a summer program and here's the pictures. This is an operation that exists to do those systemic things, to bring a community together, to identify all the missing pieces and say, okay, let's put the smart people in a room and sort this out. I think Edmonton is such a weird, awesome place for that, that Everybody will pick up the phone and everybody will say, yeah, what can I do? Like when we started calling corporate people, we thought we would either be laughed out of the room or they wouldn't even bother taking the call. And what we found is like, they were like, yeah, everybody asked me for a check, but I want to do more. And and I'm finding this new generation that I'm hiring is like, what are your values? We've been sort of putting out feelers about the idea of Edmonton's competitive advantage being addressing poverty, that like our economic success will could be dependent on how well we address poverty. Because if we do that, we will be on the map in a way that we aren't now or have ever been. You know, we've been beneficiaries of being close to Fort McMurray, but we could do something really special if we meaningfully tackled poverty. And were are known as that place because people are looking for communities that reflect their values. And, you know, it's not about the almighty dollar these days in the way that, you know, it may have been for other generations. People want to go to a place that reflects, you know, who they are and, and if you don't have poverty on your streets, that's a pretty, pretty special place. And so hopefully we can do that. And hopefully, uh, and Poverty Edmonton is connecting the dots so that our community is engaged and energized to do it.
4: That was Eric Amtman, Executive Director of End Poverty Edmonton. Now let's dive deeper and hear from one of the people who relies on Alberta's social safety net to survive. Nadine Shalafu knows all too well about the gaps that have been exposed through the pandemic. She's a Cree woman who navigates the system regularly herself and has also worked as an advocate for more than 15 years, including teaching others how to navigate the system as well. Where are you at right now and how has the pandemic impacted you? So right now
1: I am what's called a barriers to full-time employment recipient from the Alberta Works Income Support System. Right now um, I'm receiving $10,000 a year which is less than half of what AISH recipients receive for their benefits annually which really is about a third of what I need to live off of or anybody needs to live off of. It provides some help but it gives a lot of barriers to to actually being sustainable. To get on to the Age program it's very finicky. Some people can get on very easily and others, they can't get on at all. I've been trying for six years. I'm waiting to hear the final answer of my last application. But because I can get on H and I can't work because of physical disabilities, I am put on barriers to full-time employment. And I have to wait
4: until I can eventually get on to H. So how has the pandemic impacted you or potentially exacerbated some of that stress? Well, for people who are on barriers to full-time employment, they don't qualify for any of those things even if they did work part-time. And by those things, you mean SERB and some of the other programs that have been available. Yes, SERB and
1: CRB and the other yeah, all those all those other benefits that are out there to help people I have to remain more isolated than the average person because I have immune deficiencies and compromises that don't allow me to go out. So in order to do things in COVID with the protocols to be safe, those are things that are either out of my pocket and it's stuff I can't afford. For example, like masks, hand sanitizer, the ability to get to and from a place safely Uh, I rely on a walker, which is part of my disabilities. And because of that, taking the regular transit is not a viable source for me to get around the city. So I have to find other ways to get around again, which become something that requires money,
4: which I do not have. What other systems have been problematic or have you had challenges with because of the pandemic?
1: i require required to use the food bank because obviously I can't afford food barely on this money that I get. So the food hampers have been less. I have special needs for my diet and they can't always abide by what I need because other people become ahead of me. And with more people coming onto the food bank for the need of food, families get put first. So all those families that are requiring food bank That just puts me further down the list
4: to even get what I need. So you feel like the pandemic has exposed some of the gaps in our social safety net. Would that be fair?
1: Yeah, gaps that um, would have been less noticeable before COVID. It's very, very difficult when normal people just have to worry about making sure they're following protocol with wearing a mask Standing, you know, six feet apart. When you're in a grocery store, that's not always applicable. And it's not easy to do anywhere that you're going to pick up um, necessities. And so the stress levels have duplicated, if not tripled, for a lot of people who already had them. I've been put on a new medication just to be able to handle my anxiety over this term. It doesn't benefit me in the end because in the end, I should have been on just the one mental health um, medication to help with my depression. My anxiety was under control without medication, and now I can't control it.
4: And that makes life very difficult. How do you think that the systems or programs could be improved to better help people like yourself? Like, what would have helped you more? Well, unfortunately, our social system is very
1: faulty to begin with. It does not necessarily meet the needs of the people who absolutely need this to survive. You can't expect people to live off of $10,000 a year and get healthy and get financially more stable. You can't expect them to do that because there's literally no room for that. Nobody can live off of that because it works out to about 800 and some dollars a month. Rent alone takes up majority of that. That's one of the many faults that the social system has been set up for. But now, and I'm not sure if this has to do with COVID, but we have a government in our province in Alberta that is literally removing benefits all throughout the entire social net, which means Everybody is having deductions in what they were surviving off of and barely surviving off of to where they are are not getting the needs met. It started with additional transportation, which was supposed to cover taxi cabs, Ubers, those kinds of things to get to appointments when you can't use the bus. And that happens quite a lot for people who are have uh, medical needs. Then you can't. Then they start taking off a little bit here and there for different benefits and even though the benefits on the, online say they're not deducted people's paychecks have I've seen more than just mine being affected I've lost my additional shelter I've lost my additional dietary needs benefit and my core benefits have been reduced which are supposed to be untouchable I do a lot of advocacy, so I've had to make cuts to my cable, to my internet, to my phone, just to be able to have any kind of internet, because that's the only way I can interact with the people that I work alongside. And that makes it difficult, because many people don't even have that anymore, because they had to get rid of all of those things. So they have no sense of abilities to communicate with the outside world. It's more apparent now, because the COVID is like stripping away the barrier that covered it and protected all these negativities towards the social system. A lot of people don't know where to look for help or for what they are qualified for. And that makes it difficult for people to actually survive and get the things they need, including groceries, you know, toilet paper, all those things. It's impossible to survive on something that keeps taking money away from you and keeps pushing you down the line from importance. The main focus to helping our economy is for people who are working, for employers, employees. But all that money that they're putting in there is taking money out of our sector. That's only going to hurt not just the people it's immediately affecting, but it's going to hurt the overall economic system. Because in the end, these people, including myself, could become sicker, You can't ignore one system while trying to benefit the other. It's very harmful.
4: That was Nadine Shalafu. Lastly, I spoke with Karen Bruno. She has spent 30 years working on the front lines and has seen firsthand how the pandemic has impacted Edmonton's most vulnerable populations. As an Indigenous person living on Alexander First Nation, she will also share how the pandemic has impacted Indigenous people in particular. How has the pandemic impacted the people you work with, especially those with mental health and addictions issues, many of whom likely rely on programs provided by the various levels of government?
5: You know, when we talk about different populations of people who are living in poverty, I like to usually focus on the people who were already extremely struggling with issues of not just poverty, but, you know, issues of mental health and addiction and homelessness. And so given that, for instance, well, let's use detox, there's, there wasn't enough beds to begin with for people who were wanting to go to detox or treatment. But when the pandemic came, that made that even a smaller. People who wanted to change or wanted to access services felt even more marginalized I think drop-ins, like drop-ins in the inner city, you know, they went down in numbers. Sometimes people would choose more the streets living outside instead of accessing some of the services that were offered as an alternative. You know, a lot of the programs were not as accessible before. They weren't even accessible for a certain population. Before the pandemic, it made it even, even more so, almost impossible.
4: So if we look at some of the programs that are really meant to support and help some of the people that you work with, I imagine you've been helping your clients navigate these programs and navigate the changes to these programs over the last year and a bit. What has that been like? What have you heard from people in terms of frustrations and how that's impacted them? I've
5: witnessed the frustration of people not being able to get a hold of people or longer wait times or changes to their finances and with not a lot of an explanation. Especially people on AISH, a lot of them are struggling for a reason, they've been deemed as not being able to work and for whatever medical reasons, but at the same time not given the courtesy of an explanation or preparation. Or consultation of what's going to be happening and how it's going to be happening, kind of thing. So, a lot of people were feeling pretty powerless. Also, some of the clawbacks with uh, nonprofit agencies and the government funding that they received, they also had to have expressed a lot of concern for the populations that they serve. Drop ins were closing, uh, people were dying. They didn't have that relational experience that they're used to with the population they serve, they weren't able to do check-ins, wellness check-ins. They weren't able to be as accessible to people who every day is uh, an important day because that may be the day that they either get help or don't get help. And it could be life and death. The population that lives on the street, it's, it's a life and death situation to begin with. And that again, that just added a total different element of uh, concern and fear.
4: You are Indigenous. How has this impacted vulnerable Indigenous people in Edmonton in particular? Well, I think as
5: Indigenous people, we try to navigate a Western world as best we can. A lot of Indigenous people said, okay, this is just one more thing we have to get through. It's been proven time and time again that we're survivors. We can usually survive a lot. But I think the length of it took its toll on a lot of people. And I think people who were already struggling with intergenerational trauma and addictions and mental health issues, that became even more prevalent. Indigenous people are very relational people. We need to be able to interact, especially when you're living on the street and you're not in your own community. And so you adopt what's called a street family. And that includes some of the frontline workers and also includes some of the government workers. And so when you don't have those kind of routines and those relational experiences, the quality of life declines. You can only stay strong for so long. I think that's where we've seen an increase of the opioid use and uh rise in addiction and the rise in wait lists for mental health facilities and and transitional housings and I think that I would say that that's probably has been the biggest impact for indigenous people.
4: When you think about the people that you work with in these populations what do you think needs to be in place to support them in terms of programs and, and how these programs could be adjusted to do that better, especially as we look at where we are right now and start to hopefully come out of the pandemic?
5: Well, you know, if anything's taught me about anything as this pandemic is that the government has the ability to adjust and revise some of their policies financially, like, for instance, the COVID dollars it didn't take them long to implement that. I think about, you know, the quick response to this pandemic and the emergency of it all and how we just sort of made all these system changes. We need to make big system changes in how the system is laid out, how government views things from such a western way. And we need to start accessing that population themselves asking them, what is it they think they need? What do we have in the community and what could we enhance and what is working and what could we make better? We could be working on on improving livable incomes so that there's equality across the board. I don't know if it's realistic, but I also would love to see different levels of governments actually working together instead of saying it's not their jurisdiction. And some data, some real hard data on, let's get real, about racism and
4: discrimination.
5: Poverty is power and, and money. You know, who's really
4: benefiting from all that? That was Karen Bruno. Thanks to Karen, Eric, and Nadine for sharing their perspectives and experiences for this segment. As you heard, each had ideas about how to move forward and improve these systems so that fewer and ideally no people, fall through the gaps that have been exposed by the pandemic. You can follow some of the work that's being done at endpovertyedmonton.ca. For more information on this vital topic, you can find details and statistics at ecfoundation.org.
2: Thanks very much to Emily Randall Watson for bringing us that story.
3: And thanks to Eric Ampman, Nadine Shalafu, and Karen Bruno for sharing their experiences and insight with us.
2: Our vital topic, Gaps in the Social Safety Net, shares more statistics about the gaps in our system people navigate when accessing help. If you'd like to read it, head on over to our show notes for the link.
3: We also have links so you can find out more about End Poverty Edmonton and about some of the programs you heard mentioned. Oh, and we're still sharing updates about how Edmonton Community Foundation's Rapid Response Fund continues to support Edmontonians. So you'll be able to find a link to our blog and about how you can get involved.
2: While you're there checking out all the links, don't forget to look at our upcoming student awards and granting deadlines. There may be funding opportunities for you. Well, that brings us to the end of the show.
3: Thanks so much for sharing your time with us.
2: We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, be sure to share it with friends and family.
3: And if you have time, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help new listeners find our show.
2: And you can visit us on Facebook, where you can share your thoughts and see some pictures.
3: Thanks again for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Andrew Paul.
2: And Elizabeth Bonkink. Until Until next next time. time.